This is Gulf Coast Life from WGCU. I'm John Davis. Thanks for joining us. This coming Saturday, September 24th, marks the annual National Public Lands Day. The event has been held in September for nearly three decades now, and according to the National Environmental Education Foundation, which spearheaded the event, it serves as the country's largest single-day event for public lands, with thousands of volunteers coming out to participate and to help restore and improve public lands all over the nation. It's also one of the few days each year when entrance fees to national parks and other public lands are waived, and there are a number of associated events right here in southwest Florida. The upcoming national holiday has prompted our guests in today's conversation to pose the question, what role can environmental education play in our homes, our schools, and our communities that are ground zero for climate change? When we think about health impacts caused by or related to climate change, you might think of breathing problems linked to air pollution, heat-related ailments, injuries or illnesses related to storms and flooding, droughts, wildfires, and other impacts. But there's now a growing interest and body of research into mental health impacts stemming from climate change, including stress and anxiety, depression, strained social and community relationships, panic attacks, obsessive thinking, loss of appetite, and insomnia, among others. A study published last year in the journal Nature documents a largest-of-its-kind study of 10,000 young people in 10 countries on their feelings about climate change and government response. In that study, nearly 60% of respondents said they were very worried or extremely worried about climate change, with emotions linked to thoughts about climate change described as sad, afraid, anxious, angry, and powerless. This growing body of research could help reveal more, not just about how climate change is directly impacting mental health, but how improving environmental education in our schools and communities could help us cope, help us to better engage with our natural environment, inspire individuals to take action, and spur public officials and public policy to embrace plans that go beyond climate change adaptation into climate change mitigation. Joining me now to explore climate anxiety, environmental education, and shaping public policy on climate change for the future are Drs. Jennifer Jones and Dr. Heather Skaza-Acosta. Dr. Jones is director of the Center for Environment and Society at the Water School here at Florida Gulf Coast University, where she's also an associate professor in the Department of Ecology and Environmental Studies. Welcome back to Gulf Coast Life. Thank you. It's great to be here. And Dr. Heather Skaza-Acosta is interim director of the Whitaker Center for STEM Education and an associate professor of environmental education here at FGCU. She also guides the school's student internship program at the Conservancy of Southwest Florida and promotes environmental education research in our broader community. Her own research interests include the use of modeling to improve students' understanding of complicated environmental issues. Dr. Skaza-Acosta, thanks for taking the time to join us in studio. Welcome to the program. Glad to be here. To engage with us and your fellow listeners about this conversation or any of our shows, find us on Facebook. We're at WGCU Public Media. On Twitter, we're at WGCU using the hashtag GCL. So, Dr. Jones, I just wanted to start with you and thank you for introducing me to this whole concept of climate anxiety or eco-anxiety. I have to admit it wasn't a term I had heard before, but as soon as I heard it, I felt like I understood what it was. <laughs> I've definitely uh, experienced some of that myself. Can you just tell us more generally about climate anxiety? And, and this seems like a pretty new or growing body of research. Well, it is. I think it's getting more attention as as the effects of climate change become more real in all of our lives. I say it all the time. You know, Florida, southwest Florida, we are ground zero for climate change. We don't need 
folks to tell us that it's happening, we can look around and see it and feel it. And so the idea of climate anxiety is a, a newish concept, but it, de- it does come out of uh, an older concept of just general eco uh, anxiety. And so uh, I'm not a psychologist. I, you know, I work in the, the sphere of policy, but, um, you know, the American Psychological Association basically defines it as a fear or chronic fear of environmental doom from witnessing the impacts of climate change. So that's that's really important. And, you know, I you mentioned that um, global study that came out last year, a really seminal piece of research that looked at 10,000 youth around the world and um, the, two-thirds of them basically reported having, you know, anxiety around climate. And uh, 65% of them, that anxiety was because they looked around and thought that their states and their countries were not doing enough. And so the anxiety, I think, is both a factor of seeing climate change around you, seeing floods, fires, evacuations, the loss of species, those sorts of things. But then also looking around, and this is my concern for Florida, the study I mentioned doesn't address Florida, but my concern is to to look at that trend and realize that indeed we have a state that I fear is not doing enough around mitigation, is not really doing enough. And the concern that our, our youth especially, and us older folks as well, uh, know that the impacts are real and scary and, and that helplessness, that sense of, of helplessness that comes along with nothing's being done. Yeah, it, it should probably come as no surprise that the research findings so far point to the worst impacts being suffered by kids and communities that have the fewest resources. And, and as you mentioned, just because of our geography here in, here in Florida, we are at particular risk for really immediate and, and, and pretty dramatic and life-changing impacts. Yeah, that's right. And and so I've written and, and spoken elsewhere, especially, you know, here in Southwest Florida, uh, low income uh, communities, many of them are marginalized land, they are really prone for flooding. We look back at the past week, I know me driving around, I'm sure other folks are seeing the amount of flooding. Imagine right now if we got hit with a storm and imagine knowing that right now, if a storm was heading for us, not having the resources to look after your family, to look after your community. How are you going to get your kids to school? You know, if you're like me with an elderly parent, how are you going to get them their medications? How are you going to get them to the hospital? And so, you know, when we think about climate anxiety, we think about eco-anxiety. You know, I think some folks just assume that that others are anxious, like long term, that, oh, my gosh, we're going to lose, you know, species 50 years from now, 100 years from now. And Okay, yes, that can be anxiety producing, but it's tomorrow. It's next week. It's next month. It's this hurricane season. It's the anxiousness around those issues as well. And indeed, it's the poorest among us that have the least resources to cope with these things. I thought it was interesting. One of the publications you sent me from Psychology Today highlighted the work of this Norwegian psychologist. And this odd sort of inverse relationship emerged from that study and this notion that when you said things like, oh, well, in 2050, well, in this model by the year 2100, that lets us sort of quell our anxiety by putting that distance there. But the distance really isn't there. 2050 is kind of around the corner, but it's happening now too. It is absolutely <laughs> happening now. And that's where we, we have, you know, the data on our side, the, the science on our side. And, um, you know, I think you're referring to the study as well that talked uh, a lot or made the case for the role of individual action mm-hmm. as being a coping mechanism. So if you're feeling that that climate anxiety, that eco-anxiety, the study done out of England uh, found that adults in that case 
by essentially taking control of their own spending, of their own household actions, it helped give them a sense of empowerment uh, towards feeling, okay, I'm doing something now. And so the field that Dr. Skaza Acosta and I work in environmental education, we always think about environmental education as, you know, wanting folks to learn about something, engage something, and take action towards it. So all environmental education is ultimately action-oriented. And so that study, unsurprisingly, did find that people felt a greater sense of power by controlling their, their household um, actions. Now, John, you and I have spoken in the past, and I would be remiss if I didn't harp on the fact that I don't think that solving the climate crisis should be pushed onto us individuals, right? Yes, we can play a role. Yes, um, it can make us feel good about doing the right thing. Are we choosing the right products? Are we doing our part? But too often industry, big business has pushed, you know, the responsibility for taking action onto us as individuals. And that's not where change is going to happen in isolation. Heather can talk, or Dr. Skazakosta can talk today about the role of, of training teachers, the role empowerment of individual environmental education on us as people. But I also want to make sure that we, we make um, time and emphasis on the need for systemic action, civic action, holding our elected leaders accountable, holding the state accountable, holding the federal government accountable from a policy perspective. That's where change is really going to be made. And I think also if we engage our, our, you know, become more civically minded around climate education, climate literacy, it makes us feel better as well that we are now part of the solution. Yeah, and we've touched on this in past conversations, but we've kind of got a whole generation now that has been conditioned by a very specific marketing campaign by some of the biggest, you know, causes of, of greenhouse gas emissions that has sort of led us all to believe that that the onus is entirely on the individual to change our behavior. And I think 2020 was a great example of, yeah, that helps, but everybody needs to do their part because we all stop driving and we all stop flying and <laughs> carbon emissions didn't go down. That's right. Um, anyway, so beyond that point, um, Heather, tell me a little bit about some of the work that you do in terms of education and and maybe specifically if you could tell us about this NOAA-sponsored grant that I, I know that you're leading through the Water School. And, and this is specifically targeting helping to improve the quality of environmental education in, in, in mid area middle schools right here in Lee County. Yeah, so I will talk about that a little bit. I want to back up just for a second and sure. talk about why it's so important. And part of that is related to the study that we mentioned at the top of the the interview. But when young people were asked about their climate anxiety, about half of them who said they had talked to other people about it felt dismissed. Mm. And so I think that one of the biggest reactions to that can be this anxiety or dread, but the other reaction to that is action, right? And so part of the reason why we feel like this type of climate education is so important is because when kids go out there and act, and we absolutely want them to go out there and act, we want it to be informed action, and they want it to be informed action as well. They're hungry for a knowledge and an understanding of the things around them that are leading to these impacts so that they can go out and speak to others 
about it in an informed way. So with this project, we really focus on teacher education because when you focus on teacher education, you really multiply your impact. If every teacher sees 25, 30 students in one single class period, then you're sort of amplifying your message in a big way. And we really focus not just on this sort of abstract concept of climate change. And while carbon in the atmosphere is a very real phenomenon, it's a really difficult one to visualize. We focus on, for better or worse, the impacts that Florida's kids are going to see right in their own backyard. So we look at sea level rise. And as Jen said, we're all seeing the flooding uh, in our communities all around us. Those incidents of flooding and the frequency of that are only going to increase with sea level rise. We're going to talk about increased extreme weather events like hurricanes. A lot of these kids that we're talking to in middle school now were elementary students when Hurricane Irma came through, and they remember it. They remember having to leave their homes, and they remember the fact that there wasn't any place close by where they could go that they could actually get away from that storm because they're getting bigger and because they're getting stronger. So we really focus on hands-on, inquiry-driven, and student-centered activities that help them understand the impacts of climate change that they're seeing so that they can then go out and talk to others about that. And a big part of that program is developing an environmental action plan at the end of it. So they're looking at creating public service announcements. They're looking at uh, community cleanup events, different things that they can do to actually take action. And, And there are a lot of reasons for that. But one of them is, you know, it can alleviate some of that anxiety as well. Yeah, and, and I don't mean this to be a digression of our conversation yeah. anyway, but I, I remember reading in your bio them, there, there seemed to be a particular interest in using model-based mm-hmm. approaches to helping explain to students you know, some really complicated concepts related to environmental science, and I'm wondering how that plays into maybe what you're, what you're, you're doing to help these teachers. I mean, I'm biased, but to me, this is the practice that's really going to uh, help us understand or help the public understand the complexity that is climate change, right? Um, our, Our understanding is very geared as human beings towards the immediate, so things that are right in front of us, and time scales that are like a week long or something like that. So even when we think forward to 2050, it starts to get complicated and hard to understand really quickly. And the best way to break down that complexity is to simplify it through models and modeling. And so we do introduce teachers to some of the NOAA models and the science that's coming through. Um, But we also really try to get students and teachers to physically model things like the rotation of a hurricane and how that can be stronger depending on the heat of the water and, you know, all of these sort of interconnected variables that are really difficult to understand when you take them all at once. But if you break them down and model them and simplify them in different ways, it really increases their ability to understand complexity. If you're just joining the show, we're exploring climate anxiety or eco-anxiety and the importance of supporting environmental and climate change education ahead of the 29th annual National Public Lands Day. We're speaking with director of the Center for Environment and Society at the Water School here at Florida Gulf Coast University, Dr. Jennifer Jones, and interim director of FGCU's Whitaker Center for STEM Education, Dr. Heather Skaza-Acosta. If you would like to comment on our conversation or engage with fellow listeners, find us on Facebook. We're at WGCU Public Media. On Twitter, we're at WGCU. Use the hashtag GCL.
Dr. Jones, you had mentioned in your correspondence with me that uh, when it comes to environmental education and specifically outdoor environmental education in K through 12 schools, Lee County used to be considered this national leader, um, but that's no longer the case. Could you tell me more about that? I mean, I, I kept thinking about the Six Mile Cypress Slough Preserve and how the only reason we have that today is because some high school students in Lee County went knocking on doors and actually managed to convince people to raise their own taxes mm-hmm. to save it. Tell me more about how education here locally hasn't been doing what it needs to when it comes to comprehensive environmental education and teaching about climate change. Right. So... You know, I moved here about three years ago, and I had heard about Lee County environmental education before coming here, having worked in the field. And uh, nationally, it is indeed recognized as really being at the pinnacle. It was a, a county and a district that was widely known. And so you just mentioned Big Cypress, created by students, right? Mm-hmm. Created by a committed group of teachers and students and a community that over time really understood, valued the local environment, and also really believed and trusted that students could do big and amazing things. I would be willing to bet most people go, you know, walk along the preserve boardwalk today and have no idea the role that students played. And so we look ahead today where we're at, and and let's just look at Southwest Florida as a whole, not only Lee County, but but all of them, and, and actually look at the state. And we don't have any climate literacy standards, you know, adequately addressed across the state. So when I say that, what I mean is that teachers, uh, in terms of the curriculum that they are offering, in terms of the teaching that they're doing on a daily basis, it is driven by standards, i.e. testing. What do we have to test for today? What are the standardized tests um, that our district is responsible for to get funding for me as a teacher, you know, to get my to maintain my job, to get promoted, whatnot. And so standards, the introduction of standards and the the increasing elevation of standards about 20 years ago really changed the landscape of teaching across the country and across Florida as well. And so what we see, I think, uh, at that time is environmental education, uh, not being really understood or advocated for in a standards capacity. We certainly, there are science standards. There, you know, students learn about geology. They might learn about the earth. They learn about plants and animals. But environmental education as a practice is lacking in standards. And then today, if we were to look at K-12 standards across those different disciplines, across different grades, you might find one or two things that sort of hint at climate that are climate adjacent uh, in terms of like atmosphere or weather, but nowhere in our standards do we really have a good strong component on climate literacy or, or environmental education. So I mentioned that because back in the 80s, there was great environmental education happening here, big problems back then, but we look where we are today and just really, I would say an an utter lack of climate literacy and and related standards. So how we got here, I think, is part of that move to standards-based education that I mentioned that really just shifted so much of the teaching and so much of the classroom time to teaching for the test. I think what worries me now, now that the standards, the practice of standards for teaching and driving the content curriculum, delivering K-12, it's kind of baked in and where it's at, and that's not a 
Um, that's a whole nother topic. But I, I, I look around now and I think what really worries me is the increased politics um, and the politics of education. I've said it before, um, you know, that it's really concerning, you know, here in my home state of Florida, that it's increasingly feeling like an anti-science and an anti-education platform. And so the need for environmental education, the need for climate literacy is is greater than ever. And aside from overcoming the standards barrier, it's we have to overcome the politics barrier. We have to c- overcome the misinformation barrier. I um, It's not an exaggeration. I think this morning alone I got eight, maybe ten emails um, from a piece I published over the weekend denying climate change. I had, you know, folks f- here, local folks, pushing back on me using strong language, suggesting I didn't know what I was talking about, suggesting climate change is not real. And, uh, and that's what really concerns me. And... Um, Environmental education, as I mentioned earlier, is a, is a platform to engage uh, our, our students and engage our community firsthand to gain that, that knowledge, to gain that experience. And um, through the work that Heather's doing, through another new grant we got from NOAA, hopefully the, the goal is to increase outdoor education and get folks more involved in living and learning in their own communities. And, and John, if I can just take one last tagline here, one Last thing I've been saying for years, and I, I say because I really believe it's true, that, you know, half of every school day could be outside if we really wanted it to. And imagine how powerful that would be. Because when we're talking about outdoor learning, we're not just talking about environmental education. You know, you heard Heather mention the use of models. Imagine the math and the engineering that the students are learning while employing those models. We talk about environmental education, you know, all the the curriculum that we're developing here at the Center for Environment Society and that we work with schools on, you know, has a strong language arts component. So when I talk about outdoor learning, when we talk about environmental education in your schoolyard, we're not just thinking about, you know, going outside and chasing butterflies, which can be fun and important, don't get me wrong. But we're talking about achieving standards-based learning that's a real benefit for the student. Um, tell me about this other NOAA um, project that you're leading, creating a network of influencers coalition for K through 12 climate literacy education. And you're really seeking to impact public policy through the power of social networks. Um, and that's this is part of the whole outdoor education initiative. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, again, we look around the state of Florida. So this is a statewide grant. And uh, it's being led here at FGCU by the Center for Environment Society. We're partnering with a statewide body called LEAF, the League of Environmental Educators in Florida. That's the statewide body of the National Environmental Education Association. And um, the, it really, again, it recognizes the group of us that recognize the state lacks meaningful integration of climate literacy into our standards, into our K-12 curriculum. So... The, rather than trying to, from a, a top-down model, um, I designed this grant uh, kind of inspired by the climate compact that we've seen arise here in southwest Florida that's that's still emerging. We look at the climate pa- compact in southeast uh, Florida, and basically, you know, those compacts are about creating coalitions, about bringing people together, but they're not prescriptive, right? They don't tell you as a local business owner, here's what you have to do. They don't tell you as a mayor or commissioner in your own district, here's what you have to do. They give a whole menu of options. Everybody kind of agrees on what success might look like, and they they work towards it. And so the idea of building this environmental education coalition across the state is, is similar, is that we look across the state, we lack 
uh, meaningful standards for environmental education. So let's bring a group of folks together from education, from nonprofits, from businesses, from other folks who have um, who are aligned to education as a whole. Bring them together. We're going to create a um, an advisory group and ultimately trying, like you said, influence those decision makers, those folks who actually, at the end of the day, shape curriculum and who shape standards. Let's work from the bottom up and the top down uh, across all of us who are concerned with education to advocate for greater integration, especially of climate literacy into K-12 education. Can I also just mention that the the lack of climate standards in Florida is uh, not because there's an absence of support for it. So Floridians were polled just last year about whether or not they feel climate change should be taught in primary and secondary schools as fact and as anthropogenic. And almost 70% of them said that, in fact, they agree that it should be. And you mentioned the establishment of Six Mile Cypress Sloop Preserve at the top of the show. And the last time we reaffirmed Conservation 2020, which is what established Six Mile, we got 84% of that vote. So we know that this is really widely supported. So folks really do want to see the change. And I think it's for some of the similar reasons in that it has an impact. Climate change, the impacts of climate change affect everything about our life here, including the economics, the way that we supply our food. So I think when there's such widespread support like this, it's important to have a program like the one that Jen is heading up so that we can build in some of that infrastructure for those voices to be heard to really make the change we need to see in the standards. Do you think there's something particularly impactful when it comes to the the grant-funded project you're leading about teaching the seventh grade teachers that it's seventh graders from Title I schools? I do, because we know that some of these students are going to be the ones that are most vulnerable to the impacts of climate change and the least resilient to them, right? They have the least resources to recover from some of those impacts. And so I think if we can provide the information and sort of the self-efficacy to be able to go out and make change for those teachers and those students, it can be hugely impactful to the system overall. You know, another thing I would would add as well is that when we think about environmental education, we think about climate literacy, it's workforce development. Mm. You know, it, it really... It really is. Whether, you know, you work in the healthcare industry and you're managing, you know, um, again, how patients arrive at your hospital in the middle of a storm, whether you work directly with environment. I mean, if you work in tourism here, uh, the skills that we can gain through environmental education prepare our students for success. And that's where you know, I was trying to make the case earlier, especially the work Heather's doing, it's connected to STEM, right? Yes. That it's it's not just a narrow line of, of um, environment. And, uh, and, and ultimately, it's workforce development. It's good for your personal health. And, and ultimately, it's going to help protect the land, the resources, the water that we need here for our economy. And, you know, we always talk about Southwest Florida as being paradise. You know, we all have to play that role in protecting it. And Heather, on that note, 
I was just thinking about it earlier this summer. I was speaking with Kathy Worley with the Conservancy, mm-hmm. and just because of your role when it comes to FGCU interns with the Conservancy, and she was telling me how she's working on a joint project now with Rookery Bay, and her counterpart with Rookery Bay used to be one of her interns. Mm-hmm. So it's absolutely job development. <laughs> so you, you see that everywhere around here. I would give a quick shout out one of the uh, events happening this weekend for Public Lands uh, Day that you mentioned is at Crew Corkscrew uh, Regional Ecosystem Watershed. I spoke with the environmental education manager there this morning, who's an FGCU alum, and he graduated with the program, worked both with and for Heather and I, and uh, is now out there leading programs and, and engaging our community. So folks are looking for a way to do something as part of Public Lands Day this weekend, check out Crew. Absolutely. Also, if you want to see all the events in our area, uh, I would recommend visiting the National Environmental Education Foundation's webpage. That's neefusa.org. And there's an easy search tool where you can just put in your zip code and you can find anything within 250 miles of you, more than you could possibly actually do. Uh, what will um, either of you be doing um, either on the 24th or in this week leading up to it since there there are so many events? I mean, we always celebrate Public Lands Day as a family, so we will be enjoying some of our outdoor spaces. Um, and to connect this back to sort of climate education and the importance of that just related to our public lands, you know, in Florida, about 13 percent of Florida is public land, which might might not be much compared to, you know, some of the states in the West that could be 60, 70 percent. But some of those areas are the biggest buffers we have against climate change. Right. And so really thinking about how we manage those lands uh, is important to what those impacts of climate change might look like in Florida. And really thinking about climate education related to that, it's the educated public that's going to be making the decisions around how we manage those lands. So it really is all connected back to climate education in some ways. All right. Wonderful. Well, we are about out of time. We've been speaking with director of the Center for Environment and Society at the Water School here at Florida Gulf Coast University, Dr. Jennifer Jones, and interim director of FGCU's Whitaker Center for STEM Education, Dr. Heather Skaza Acosta. Thank you both so much for sharing your time and your insights. And if you missed any of today's show, you can always hear episodes in their entirety on our website, wgcu.org slash gcl, or subscribe to our podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. Our show today was produced by Jared Gonzalez and yours truly. Our director is Richard Chinqui. Our social media coordinator is Tara Halligan. For now, thanks for listening. I'm John Davis. This is WGCU-FM, Fort Myers 90.1, WMKO Marco Island 91.7 FM, NPR for Southwest Florida. Florida.